be here teaching Sunday school. Um, my name is Drew Admiral. Most of, I know most of you, and most of you know me, but I'm, I'm an intern here at, uh, at Christ URC, and uh, Chuck asked me to fill in for Sunday school. Uh, he's in Torrance today, and uh, Pastor Bill is teaching the new members class, so um, they may have asked some other people who said no before me, but uh, anyway, I'm, I'm, the, uh, I'm on, on deck today, so I'm really, really happy to be here with all of you and um, excited to, to dig into this book, which I... Uh, which, um, I have not been following along. I normally teach the, the middle schoolers, but I enjoyed the, the chapter that I'm teaching on today um, a lot. It's, it seems like a really helpful and interesting book, so I hope you've all been enjoying it and, uh, and enjoying Chuck's lessons on it. So with that, let's say a quick prayer, and then we'll, we'll get started here for the day. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we thank you for uh, this day that you've given us, for worship and rest. We thank you for the opportunity we have now to uh, study a little more in depth your word and this uh, really interesting period in the history of your people, the uh, exile and the return from exile, waiting for uh, the Messiah to come, um, rebuilding, uh, but, uh, but waiting for uh, the fullness of your glory to appear. And we thank you that Christ has come, and we uh, look forward to that day when he will return and, uh, and make all things new. So we pray that you would please bless our time here together. Uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've written um, a lot of dates here on the board. I'm not going to talk about most of these, but I know some people uh, appreciate kind of being able to uh, put things in a context, and so I, uh, I wanted to give you some contextualization here for some of the things we'll talk about. So I won't even mention most of these kings or even some of these dates here with the exile, but if, you are, uh, if, if you're somebody who enjoys kind of uh, being able to put things in a specific context, understanding when things happened, uh, this, is, this is for you. So I'll just, and I'll just mention a few of these dates as we as we go along, and then I have a bit of a uh, of an outline here that I'll go through on the right hand side of the board there. So, um, and I apologize. I understand Chuck usually gives a handout. I don't have one, so I'm I'm sorry uh, about that. But uh, some people were taking pictures of this, so you're welcome to take a picture if you like. But. Um, the, uh, so we're talking today about the exile, the exilic period of, uh, of Jewish history, and then the time after the exile, and those uh, books in the Old Testament canon that correspond to that period of, of Jewish history. And this is really a very interesting time in the, in the history of, uh, of the southern kingdom, of, uh, of the tribe of Judah. Um, it's a time of we might say metaphorical and literal rebuilding, uh, because everything, of course, in the uh, in this uh, year 586, Jerusalem is uh, is largely destroyed when Babylon comes against the city. They break down the walls, they break down the uh, king's palace, and and maybe uh, worst of all, they break down the temple. The temple is destroyed, and uh, so uh, and the uh, Jewish people, of course, spend then a, a number of years in exile until the Persians take over and uh, send them back to their land, and they need to rebuild. They have to uh, not only rebuild the physical structures that were knocked down by Babylon in 586, but they also have to rebuild as a people. They have to think through a number of new situations and scenarios that they did not have to deal with before. How do we exist as a people without a king, for example? Because you can see this is the last king of Judah, and he, uh, he was killed in 586. 
And so um, there, there's no longer any king on the throne, no longer anyone uh, from the line of David ruling over the people. And so they have to ask themselves, how do we live in this new period without a king, without an army, without a military to defend us? Uh, without, uh, we're under Persian domination. They're back in the land, but they're still under Persian domination. And if some of this sounds familiar, it's because I did a sermon series this past summer uh, through part of Zechariah, and a lot of these issues come up in Zechariah because he's one of the prophets that is helping the people think through these things as they return from exile, helping them think through how they are to rebuild both literally and metaphorically along with Haggai. So we'll think a little more about uh, the, the, the ministries of those two prophets as we go along here. Um, of course, by the time that the exile, uh, by the time we get to this date in 586, and in your, if you read the chapter in the book, uh, um, Zach uh, does mention that there are four different deportations, and that's true, but for our purposes, I'll just kind of refer to 586 as really the year when exile begins. Um, I think that's a helpful way to think about it. So um, there were a number of deportations, but 586 is the year things are really destroyed in the city, and um, that's, the, that's really the year that the people look back to as the beginning of, of the exile. Um, and of course, by the time that that rolled around, the northern kingdom had already been, um, had already been destroyed, had already been uh, finished off by the Assyrians a number of years earlier in 722. So I put that date on the board for you as well, just so you can see how long it had been that the southern kingdom had been existing by itself. During the reigns of all of these kings, it was only the southern kingdom left. The northern kingdom was no longer in existence at that point. Um, they had already been carried away, and Assyria had a policy uh, the, way, the way they did it. Different nations did it differently, different policies, uh, just like we have today. And the way Assyria did it was they would uh, deport a number of people from a conquered nation to somewhere else. They would deport people from another nation to the nation they had just conquered. So there was mixing that occurred. And they thought that would kind of destroy the cultural identity of the people who they had conquered and make them more uh, submissive to their rule. And this is where we get the Samaritans, actually. You read about the Samaritans in the New Testament. Uh, this is where they come from, is this kind of intermixing of people who the Assyrians left behind from the northern kingdom, but also people who the Assyrians then brought in from other cultures and peoples to kind of uh, mix up the culture of the northern kingdom. That's where the Samaritans come from. Um, and that's why there was so much animosity. Uh, that, that's probably why there was so much animosity between the, those who came back in the, in the south and those in the north is that the Samaritans were this mixed people who had adopted all kinds of other cultural practices and, become, uh, and, and had not remained pure. Um, so, so 722 that year that, uh, that the northern kingdom, but uh, we're thinking about 150 or so years later, when, uh, when the southern kingdom comes to an end in 586. Uh, a couple more significant dates just to, just to point out here. Um, this decree of Cyrus, of course, is really significant, and that gets a lot of attention in several biblical books, that Cyrus sends the exiles back. It's ultimately God who's responsible. He moves the heart of the king to send the exiles back from Babylon. And to, uh, and to actually pay for them to fund the rebuilding of their temple um, to, uh, to allow them to, to rebuild as a people. Um, and so that's an, 
important date, 538. So during, between this time they, is really the exilic period, we might say. And then after 538 begins the post-exilic period, this time of rebuilding, and eventually the temple is finished in 516. Um, but there's still more needed. There's still more that's needed, and that's why uh, we have the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, another 50, 60 years later, because the people have still not, uh, still not rebuilt completely, uh, both literally and metaphorically. And so we'll kind of think through some of that. Now, I understand some of the themes that you've been thinking through uh, during this time through, uh, through this book have been, um, one of the themes has been uh, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. That's a theme that runs through the whole scripture, that uh, at the very, the first promise of the gospel is that God will send uh, a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And that's what the people are, are waiting for, is that seed of the woman to come to defeat their enemies, the seed of the serpent. And yet during this period, it's kind of an interesting uh, question. Where is the seed of the woman? It was focused, I think as Chuck's mentioned to you, on the king, right? It was focused initially on the whole people. The people needs to uh, be righteous. They need to um, defeat God's enemies. It became focused on the king as this representative of the people who will defeat their enemies. That's what David did for them. And yet without a king... Uh, there is this question, where is the seed of the woman? Who will be the representative of God's people? Who will fight for them? Who will defeat their enemies? Um, How will God fulfill these promises? The seed of the serpent, right, is the enemies of God, very clearly, Assyria, Babylon, these nations that are, that are, uh, that, that are, uh, have overtaken the people of God. But where is the seed of the woman during this time? It's kind of, uh, it's kind of hard to, hard to determine in some ways. Um, another kind of broad theme that I understand you've been tracing is this idea of a holy people in a holy place. That at the, be- at the very beginning in Eden, God created for himself a holy people, Adam and Eve, to be holy to the Lord in this holy place, the garden. And uh, upon their sin, they were cast out of the garden, cast out of God's presence. And the story really of, the, uh, of scripture as well is coming back into the presence of God. This is, uh, this is what the sacrificial and ceremonial system in Leviticus is all about, is coming back into God's presence. And this is why you have to observe all those regulations for purity so you can be in God's presence. You can go to the temple. Um, and uh, of course, there was some deficiency associated with it. It was not meant to be permanent because only one time, once a year, somebody can really enter into the full presence of God. And so, uh, and so we'll, we'll trace as well a little bit as we go through today how this holy people and holy place plays out uh, in, the, in the exile and beyond. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of keep these themes in mind as we go. Um, so this is how I want to kind of think about this period very briefly under each of these points. Um, firstly, why the exile? And then secondly, how are the people to live in the interim as they're in exile, as they're living in Babylon, as they're away from their homeland? How are they to live? Um, the third thing I want to I trace is this idea of where is the glory? This is a question that people are asking themselves, a, a, a question that kind of spurs the writing of especially Ezra and Nehemiah. Those books are written to people who are asking themselves, where is the glory that we have been expecting? And then finally, uh, we'll think about how all of this is fulfilled in Christ, how this points us forward to Christ, and how we can uh, kind of, uh, how this applies to us in, in our day as well. Um, so first, if we ask the question, where is the, or why the exile, excuse me, why the exile, 
uh, we, we have to go back to Deuteronomy for a moment. And I know you've been going through uh, all of the Old Testament, and so this will come as no, uh, nothing new to you, no surprise to you, so I'll be, I'll be brief. But in Deuteronomy, uh, when God, as the, as the uh, covenant is laid out for the people, as Moses is giving the people the covenant on the plains of Moab, they're about to enter into the promised land, there are, at the end of Deuteronomy, blessings and curses which are laid out for the people, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience to God's law. And most fundamentally, these blessings and curses concern the people's uh, ability to stay in the land, their right to stay in the land. If they're obedient, then God will allow them to stay in the land, allow them to uh, keep their tenure in the land. If they're disobedient, they'll be kicked out of the land like the people before them were. And so this is what the, uh, what the blessings and the curses center on, is their ability to stay in the land. If they are obedient, uh, blessings, if they are disobedient, the curses will come upon them. And it's kind of interesting, maybe uh, this has already been mentioned, but it's worth mentioning again that already in Deuteronomy, there's this sense from Moses as he's speaking to the people that although, yes, there are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, and Moses commands the people, you need to obey, you need to circumcise your hearts, there's already this sense that the people will not be able to do this, that the people will disobey inevitably, that the curses will come upon them. At the very, toward the beginning of the book, I should say, in chapter 10, Moses says, circumcise your hearts to the people. In other words, obey, obey God's law, do what's right in, in God's sight. Toward the end of the book then, in chapter 30, Moses said to them, God will circumcise your hearts. And in between, there's this recognition that the curses are going to come upon them, that ultimately they can't do it themselves, that God is going to need to circumcise their hearts. He's going to need to give them the ability to obey his law, that they are not able to obey it by themselves. The history of Israel, then, is really one that can be summarized as a faithless people and a faithful God. We see that in several of the historical psalms, like Psalm 106, where the people, time and time again, God does all these wonderful things for them. He rescues them from Egypt. He uh, conquers their enemies before them. He gives them everything they need. He brings them into the land. He makes them prosper. And they return that with disobedience. They return that by rebelling against him. They return his kindness with, uh, with disobedience over and over again, and by worshiping foreign gods, by doing all these things which are not right in God's sight, by, uh, by disobeying his law. Um, that's really the history of, of Israel as a faithless people and a faithful God. And as, as Chuck has mentioned, this obedience, uh, which was focused on the people, the people were the ones who said, all this we will do at the, uh, the covenant-making ceremony. They're the ones who took upon themselves the responsibility to obey the law. But this really became focused on the king at, at some point, especially around the time of David. This obedience becomes focused on the king as the representative of the people. We need one person who will obey. We need one person who can obey as a representative for the whole people. And we really see that come out most clearly maybe in the Davidic covenant, which I know Chuck has talked about, so I won't go into that too much. But God promises that there will be a faithful king, that king, a king from David's line will rule, and that the faithful king will be the one who will build God's house. He'll be the one who will uh, create the holy people and holy place, ultimately, this, this faithful king who will come. There needs to be a, a representative, a, a righteous king like David who can, be, uh, who can obey on behalf of the people, who can create a holy people and a holy place for them. 
and uh, the kings throughout the history of Israel are evaluated. We see that time and time again in the book of Kings, especially, that the kings are evaluated based on how they perform against the, uh, against the laws that are laid down in the book of Deuteronomy, and against uh, if, if they were righteous, if they were a righteous king like David. So we see, for example, uh, with a couple of these kings, Manasseh and Josiah, Manasseh was not a good king, Kings tells us. He did not walk in the way of David. He uh, set up all kinds of idols. He went away. He went after foreign gods. He, was, he, he disobeyed Deuteronomy. He was not a righteous king like David. Josiah, on the other hand, is portrayed the opposite. Kings tells us he was a righteous king. He walked in the way of David. He tore down all the idols. He effected restoration in the land of, uh, of Judah. He was a righteous king. And time and time again with the kings, we see, uh, we see this evaluation of them. Were they a righteous king? Were they a good king? Did they do uh, what was right in God's eyes? Did they tear down the idols? Did they, uh, or did they turn away to foreign gods and go after, uh, go after other gods? The prophets, I know uh, Chuck talked about the prophets last week, they're these covenant lawyers who come against uh, the kings, especially and the people, to, uh, to bring God's lawsuit against them, to say, you've broken the, uh, the law that I laid down in Deuteronomy. God laid, they, they, just like we think of our lawyers today, they look at the law, they look at God's law that he gave the people in the book of Deuteronomy, and they look at the people's actions alongside that law, and they say, yep, you've broken that law, and here I'm bringing, I'm prosecuting God's lawsuit against you. You're guilty uh, before, this, before this law. Um, we're especially thinking today about the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They were those two prophets who, uh, who prophesied up to and then into even the time of the, of the exile. And they follow that pattern of the, of the prophets who went before them of prosecuting God's lawsuit against them, of telling them, of, of holding up this law that God has given them, of holding up their deeds uh, against that law and of saying, Yep, you've broken this law. You deserve punishment as a result because you've, you've broken God's law. You've broken the covenant. Um, with that King Manasseh, all uh, we, uh, kings, it's, it's interesting because all the kings before, there's this sense that maybe there's a chance for repentance. Maybe there's a chance that, uh, that the people will turn, that they will, um, that they will repent, and that God will relent from his anger, that they won't need to go into exile but Manasseh was so bad that Kings tells us that this, is, this was the last straw, essentially, <laughs> paraphrasing, but that, that this is essentially the last straw with Manasseh, that at that point, after Manasseh, the, the die has been cast, the exile is coming. And even when Josiah, this great king, who brings greater restoration, greater renewal to the people than any king had before, uh, practically... Even, even then, the book of Kings still tells us that it was too late. Because of the sins of Manasseh, God was sending the people into exile. And so really, with the time of Manasseh, we're headed toward exile for the next, um, from, from the time of Manasseh until 586, so for the next uh, 50 years or so. We'll call it, I'm not great at math, so we'll call it 50 years. But that's really the point when all hope has been lost, is after, after this, this wickedness of, of King Manasseh. Destruction and exile is coming no matter what. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel are those prophets who prophesied leading up to the exile. So Jeremiah began his, uh, began his uh, ministry during the time of Josiah. And he prophesied all the way up until the time of the exile. Ezekiel began his, uh, his ministry actually in the exile already. He had been... Uh, 
he had been taken into exile during one of those uh, prior deportations to Babylon. And so he began his ministry in exile. And so he's speaking to people who, uh, for whom, he's speaking to a nation for whom exile is inevitable. It is coming. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are, are uh, in Ezekiel's case, it has already come in, in some sense, and Jerusalem's destruction, he says, is, is coming even worse. And really the message of those two prophets, we can think about it uh, maybe really simply and a helpful way to think about it is because of the people's sin, destruction and exile is coming, God's presence is leaving, but there's hope after the exile. That's kind of very simply the message that they have for the people is because of your sin, because of the wickedness of, of, uh, because you've broken God's covenant, uh, destruction and exile is coming, God's presence is leaving, but there is hope for after the exile. Um, Jeremiah's preaching, as I, as I said, comes uh, during, he first comes on the scene during the reign of Josiah, and then he prophesies up until the exile. And this really is, is what he preaches about. He taught, we read this morning, actually, um, that, that worked out really nicely, that Pastor Bill read from Jeremiah chapter 2 during his, uh, during his sermon this morning, um, that Jeremiah talks to the people. He says, you, you started out so well in some ways, um, but you have turned against God time and time and time again, and now exile is coming. Uh, the curses of, of Deuteronomy will come. Those curses that are laid out for disobedience to the covenant, those are, those are coming most, most certainly, he says. Um, and it is interesting because one of the things that uh, we, we've been tracing, that holy people and holy place idea, and one of the things Jeremiah uh, kind of polemicizes against, one of the things he speaks against uh, with the people is that they are simply saying, we have the temple, so we're, we're invincible. We can't be, we can't be destroyed because we have the temple. In other words, what they're saying is we can do whatever we want. We can act however we want because the temple's in our midst. And Jeremiah says, no, it's not about just, being, just having a holy place in, in the middle of, you know, in the middle of uh, your country in Jerusalem. It's about being a holy people as well, and that's what you've neglected. Those two need to go together. And so just because you have the temple doesn't mean destruction's not coming. In fact, it is coming. Um, and, so he, uh, and so he warns them against that kind of thinking, that just because the temple's there, just because the ark's there, they're safe no matter what they do. No, that's not true, he says. Um, he promises, as you may have read in the chapter, that, that there's going to be a 70-year period. And uh, I think Zach does a really nice job with, uh, with talking about what that 70-year period means, but essentially it's just the pouring out of God's wrath. That, that's a symbolic number for the full extent of God's wrath being poured out on his people for their, for their sins. And there's several things that come into that. It's the length that the temple will be destroyed. It's the length that Babylon will be the ruling power. It's the length that they will be exiled from the land is, is all represented by that 70 years of God's wrath being poured out on his people. And yet, as I said, right, so we have that because of their sin, that destruction is coming, that exile is coming, and yet there's hope for after the exile. Even in, uh, in the time of Jeremiah, when exile is inevitable, when God has, God has said, yes, I'm, I'm sending you into exile, I'm punishing you, I'm going to pour out my wrath on you for 70 years, Jeremiah still says, 
Yes, but after the exile, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You all, I'm sure, are very familiar with that passage. It's, it's one of the most well-known passages from Jeremiah and from the prophets as a whole, this promise of a new covenant that's coming, a new covenant that can't be broken, right? Israel broke the old covenant. That's why they were sent into exile. This new covenant can't be broken, and so it's superior in that, in that way because it's an unbreakable covenant. Right now, there's destruction, but even in the light of this, um, there is a new covenant coming, an unbreakable covenant. So Ezekiel's preaching is, is somewhat similar. Um, I think we can think about it in a similar way, and I, I, won't, uh, I won't spend as long on, on uh, Ezekiel, but he has some similar themes. God's presence is leaving. There's this imagery that Ezekiel sees of God's presence leaving the temple, of God, of God, this is a vision that Ezekiel has of God leaving the temple, leaving his people. His presence is, is going away. It's really a sad and terrible thing. Um, similarly, Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel um, speaks against the people for having broken God's covenant and, uh, and tells them that judgment is coming. Uh, but again, Ezekiel talks about hope beyond the exile, that there's hope. The, there will come a time when God will uh, put his spirit in his people and he'll turn their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, another really famous passage. These beautiful promises for hope after the exile. Now, what is the exile? As we close out this first subpoint, what is the exile? Well, it's a punishment for sin. It's a punishment for covenant-breaking. It's a banishment from the Lord's holy presence. It's being overcome by God's enemies. Really, the exile is a picture of the day of the Lord, that day when God will destroy all those who, all the wicked, all those who set themselves against him and against his people, uh, when the wicked will be punished for their sins. It's a picture of the day of the Lord. It's a picture of hell, even. This is how Lamentations views the exile is there's this desolate place that God has abandoned. God's presence is gone. He's swallowed up his people. There's bodies laying in the street. This is a picture of the day of the Lord and of, a, and of being fully removed from God's favorable presence. Uh, this is what the exile is for, uh, for the uh, tribe of Judah, and that's why it's such a devastating event for them, because this really is God's uh, this really is a picture of God's final and ultimate judgment against the wicked that they undergo. That's, uh, this is really what the exile uh, represents. As we move then to the second point, how are the people to live in the interim? The book of Daniel especially is really interesting and helpful in this regard. Daniel's a lot like, uh, a lot like Joseph, right? That's maybe the closest comparison we have for Daniel because he is somebody who is a sojourner and a stranger in a foreign land. He's somebody who's worshiping uh, the, the one true God in that land. He finds himself in the king's court, and the Lord blesses him. He prospers him in that labor. It, Daniel's labor there is actually legitimate. It's, uh, it's labor which the Lord blesses and which he uh, gives him the strength to do. And, uh, and, so, um, and Daniel, like Joseph, is elevated to the highest ranks in that kingdom in which he finds himself. And so, uh, and so as we think about how, to, how are the people to live in the exile, well, they're to live during this interim period between, uh, between God's judgment and the pouring out of his wrath and between when God will fulfill his promises of a return. They're to live, uh, they're to live in this nation. They're to, uh, they're to make their houses. They're to take, um, take legitimate work and, 
and so on and so forth. They're, they're, not, to, um, they're not to seek to uh, get out of this themselves. They're to wait for the Lord to act on their behalf. Yes? Well, it's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, if you think, so the exile um, did not remove everybody from the land, right? There were some, especially the poorer people uh, from Judah stayed behind. And uh, some of the things that... Um, Excuse me, I met in the, in the exile, in Babylon. Okay, okay, sure, yeah. So, right. I, I mean, if you look at... Um, if you look at the example of, of Daniel, um, and I'm, I'm happy for anyone else to chime in if they have other thoughts here, but um, I mean, we're told that, uh, that his practice was to pray towards Jerusalem several times a day. Um, I mean, I, I don't think there would have been a mechanism for them to continue uh, with, the, with the sacrifices. There was no temple um, and, and so on and so forth. The high priestly line uh, was still known because after, uh, after the people returned from exile, uh, we get this interesting vision of Joshua, the high priest, whose grandfather was the high priest before the exile, and he becomes then the high priest after the exile. But yeah, during it, I mean, um, what exactly their worship looked like, prayer toward Jerusalem is, is the first thing that comes to mind. Does anyone else have, have, want to chime in at all with that? Any other thoughts? Yeah. So... That's the best I have for you, yeah. You don't know where it's addressed in Scripture. Nothing comes to my mind. That, that passage in Daniel is the, fir- is the one that's coming to my mind right now, yeah. So there may be some in Ezekiel, because he was in exile with them, but I would have to, I'd have to go back and look specifically for that. Nothing is coming to mind at the moment. Yeah. Sorry, that's the best I have, so... Um, this uh, anyway, so this interesting example of Daniel for how to how to live in exile. Um, you're to live uh, as under this kind of legitimate Babylon is is almost presented um, in Daniel as this legitimate rule. Daniel is a legitimate uh, is is acting as if Nebuchadnezzar is a uh, a legitimate king. He works for him. He interprets dreams for him. Um, He's unafraid to tell him to tell him when uh, when he's doing something wrong. That's an interesting, uh, of course, piece of the book. But uh, but um, anyway, Daniel gives us some gives us some uh, helpful things to think through when it comes to uh, living uh, in this interim period between uh, living in the land and and the return. So uh, and of course the book of Esther as well, right? This the book of Esther is a little bit later. It's after the return has already happened, but it shows us those people who stuck around. There were some who never returned, right, from Babylon. They had uh, maybe gotten good jobs. They had maybe prospered there, right? This is, uh, I, I mean, we we know that there were um, that there were a number of people who did quite well for themselves. Uh, in exile, and so they they never wanted to go back, and they never returned, and that was what Esther's family was, and so she stuck around. Yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that uh, yeah another another uh, interesting story. Yeah. So, um, but uh, but anyway, so so Esther gives us an, another interesting picture of uh, of life in exile. Those two books. So. Um, to turn then to our third point here, since we're uh, about 10 minutes of our time left, 
uh, this interesting question of where is the glory starts to come up as the people return from exile because there's all this excitement over the decree of Cyrus in 538. As Cyrus comes to power, as, he, uh, as Persia becomes the, the powerhouse in, uh, in the world, in the ancient Near East, there's all this excitement over, over the return. And I think we can imagine, and I think it would be fair for the people to think uh, to themselves that ne- this is the new covenant. This is the fulfillment of those promises to Jeremiah. This is, uh, this is we're going to get everything that they promised. And of course, we know that uh, well, this was the fulfillment of promises. This was the fulfillment of the 70 years that, uh, that God had said that, that they would remain in exile. This was the fulfillment of their return. This was not the full fulfillment of all the promises or as great as what they were hoping for. And so they begin to ask themselves this question, where is the glory? Where is the glory that we're looking for? We read in the book of Ezra, for example, that when, the, uh, when that temple, that uh, temple that they rebuilt after the exile was finished, that some of the people who didn't remember the first temple were really happy with it. They said, this is a great temple. What a, what a great masterpiece we've constructed here. But the people who remembered the first temple, some of them wept because they realized how much worse it was than the first temple. It was not as beautiful. It was not as majestic. It was not as glorious as that first temple. And so they asked themselves, where is the glory? Where is the, where is the glory? Of course, the king, they never got a king back in the land like they had before the exile. They never got a military back exactly like they had before the exile. Uh, it took a while for the walls to be rebuilt. Until the time of Nehemiah, the walls were, were, uh, were likely not rebuilt or at least not rebuilt very well. And so they're wondering, when are these promises going to be fulfilled in their, in their fullness? When are we going to see the glory that's been promised? This is not the full glory that, that we're waiting for, that we, uh, that we were expecting with the return from exile. And, uh, and as the people are wrestling with this, they so quickly become like the people from before the exile. They're really excited. They get back in 538 or so, and they're really excited. They're, they begin to rebuild the temple. And very quickly, they stop rebuilding They're concerned with other things. They're concerned with opposition. They're concerned with making houses for themselves. They're concerned with uh, all the kind of daily things of life that are distracting them from this mission that they have to rebuild the temple when they've returned. And so uh, they, they stop altogether rebuilding the temple. For over 15 years, they stop until the time of Haggai and Zechariah when the prophets say, you people need to get it together. Start building the temple again. You need to start again. This is unacceptable that you're worried about your own houses and your own, uh, and your own profit and your own gain and you're not worried and you're scared of the opposition and you're not worried about uh, rebuilding the house of God. There's this holy place that's needed and yet what Zechariah brings out especially clearly um, and what Ezra and Nehemiah bring out then when they come a number of years later is that they also need to be a holy people. God is returning, right? You may remember uh, from Zechariah chapter one, that's how the book of Zechariah begins. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. The people need to, God, God is making this wonderful promise to return to his people, to, that his glory will once more dwell among them, but they need to return to him. They need to be uh, the holy people of God once again. And that's a struggle throughout the uh, throughout the post-exilic period. Um, we saw the struggle. I, I just talked about the struggle right away. In 538, when they returned, they stopped building the temple. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah have to get them going. But then by the time that Ezra and Nehemiah come, there's more struggle. 
the people have once again turned away. They once again need to repent. The walls aren't rebuilt. Nehemiah needs to help take care of that. The, uh, the people have intermarried with, other, with the other people around them. Had that, uh, had that been left going on, they would have become kind of like the Samaritans, right? But Ezra forces them to separate. They need to be pure from the people who are around them. Um, and, uh, and so there's this national repentance that we read about at the end of Ezra, at the end of Nehemiah. There's repentance that's, that's needed as they're wondering, where is the glory? They continue to slip back into their old patterns as they're waiting for God to bring the final fulfillment of his promises. Um, and those books of Ezra and Nehemiah are written to those people wondering where is the glory and encouraging them to be patient that God has fulfilled many promises and that God will fulfill his promises. But in the meantime, they need to be the holy people of God. He will consummate his promises. So in our last five minutes here, I'll talk just briefly about uh, how do we see this fulfilled in Christ? How, do we, how can we think about this in light of its fulfillment in Christ? Well, as we said, the exile is like the day of the Lord. The exile is like that day when God will pour out his wrath on the wicked, when God will uh, finally judge uh, the righteous and the wicked. And uh, of course, Christ on the cross didn't just undergo the day of the Lord in, in, a, uh, in picture form like we see in the exile. This is kind of a picture of the day of the Lord, but of course, there were many of those, uh, of those individual uh, Israelites who were saved by grace alone through faith alone. But Christ really underwent the wrath of God. He really underwent the day of the Lord on the cross in order to inaugurate that new and greater and unbreakable covenant. That's, that's, uh, that's a wonderful thing, that Christ underwent the curses of the covenant uh, as one who was not a covenant breaker himself. He underwent the curses of a covenant breaker so that all of us who are covenant breakers, who have broken God's law, might be found in him by, by faith alone. He underwent the day of the Lord so that we wouldn't have to. We can undergo it in him. Um, as for this question, where is the glory? This is a question that we may still ask ourselves today, right? I mean, um, in, in some ways, of course, uh, we, we read at the opening of John's gospel, we beheld his glory. We've beheld the glory of Christ, the glory of, uh, the glory of this one uh, who, who has come to work salvation for his people. And yet it, it's not a glory like a kind of earthly glory that people seek for, that, that sinful people seek for, that we so often seek for. And that's why in the book of John, uh, as John is playing with this idea of glory, so often uh, he, he makes this point that Christ's glory is actually, his, his hour of glory is actually his lifting up on the cross. That's Christ's hour of glory. It's not a glory that people look for. This is why so many people rejected him when he came, is because it wasn't the kind of glory that they were looking for. And in a lot of ways, we're in a time of less glory than Israel was. We have no physical temple that we can point to and say, look at the beauty of this temple. This is a picture of our glory as God's people. We don't have a, a physical land that belongs to us as, as Christians. We live in, uh, in the United States of America, which is not ancient Israel, not the same. Um, and so we live in this time of, of uh, arguably less glory than the people of Israel. And yet, of course, we have seen uh, the fulfillment of God's promises. And so we can be pointed just like the people after the exile were to the fulfillment of God's promises. He brought them out of Egypt. 
uh, in the Exodus. He brought them back from the exile. He has fulfilled his promises, and he will consummate his promises for us as well. We have seen the fulfillment of even great, greater promises uh, in, that we have seen, uh, in that we have seen the salvation which he has brought for his people once and for all through Jesus Christ. And so we can have utter confidence that even though we're in a time of less glory right now, Uh, the glory will come. God's promises will be fulfilled. Those promises uh, that the prophets have made of the new heavens and the new earth, a time of great glory, will be fulfilled, uh, and that we'll dwell there forever with our God in in great glory. Um, So let's, uh, with that, I think uh, that's our time. So let's say a prayer and let the the kids get out of uh, of their Sunday school. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for uh, your many blessings to us. We thank you for uh, this time together for the opportunity to study your word and uh, pray that you would uh, point us to Christ more and more. We thank you that even though this is a time of, um, of lesser glory, that this is a time when we're awaiting uh, the consummation of your promises, we thank you that, uh, that, we have, uh, a, that we have witnessed that salvation through your son, Jesus Christ, and that because of that, we can have full confidence that, uh, that one day we will uh, behold with our eyes Uh, that glory, not only of Christ, but of the new creation where we will dwell with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, for all eternity. We thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.